The title of this morning's message is The Conversion of a Criminal. The Conversion of a Criminal. We'll be looking at the thief on the cross that the Lord Jesus Christ in his dying hours brought to himself. The Conversion of a Criminal. We'll be reading in Luke chapter 23. We'll begin reading in verse uh, Luke chapter 23, verse 23. If we can go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word this morning. We'll go ahead and begin in verse 32. There were also two others, malefactors, led with him to be put to death. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them deride him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he be Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And a superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. And one of the malefactors which hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this portion of Scripture, and pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and our minds to the truth that is before us. We pray that you would be glorified, that the Lord Jesus Christ would be uplifted and exalted to the preaching of your truth this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would help us who are believers to appreciate the glorious grace of our God in saving us from our sin, and for those that are not yet converted, we pray for their conversion this morning, Lord, that you would work and their hearts, that you would bring them to true repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Here we find before us these three hours as our Lord is hanging on Calvary's cross. and his agony as he is dying, yet our Lord makes time not only to pray for those who are executing him, but to bring a man to faith in himself. Crucifixion, unlike today, when a person is executed, they're given an IV and they're put to sleep and they die very humanely, crucifixion was one of the worst ways possible for a man to die. Yet here we find our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ dying on Calvary's cross. Not for his sin, but for the sin of others. And as he's dying there, yet there he is bringing a man savingly to himself. Every word that we speak today, we speak it in ease, in an easy way. We, we, we speak to one another and conversate. Yet, for both the Lord Jesus Christ and these men, it was agony in order to utter one word. And yet our Lord is here conversating with a man, bringing to a man to what we would call conversion. This morning, we're going to learn something about several things. We're going to learn something about human nature. <clears throat> we're going to see... And the thief that did not repent and come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to see how radically and totally depraved mankind is. And how man is dead in his trespasses and sin. How man is beyond hope unless God 
Almighty intervenes. We also will learn this morning something about the saving Almighty grace of the living God and how no man, no matter how wicked and how vile, that no man is beyond the grace, the saving grace of God. This morning we learn the possibility of a deathbed conversion. We see that it is possible a man can live a hellish, evil, selfish, horrible, wicked life, and yet, in his dying hours, God can come to him in regenerating grace and mercy and bring him savingly to the Lord Jesus Christ. If I were to visit a dying man, a man dying in the hospital or a dying woman in the hospital, I could come to them, and if they were unconverted, and tell them that there is hope. Even in your very final hours, God is merciful unto sinners. And here we picture, we see the grace of God, not only in the death of our Lord and Savior, but in Him taking time to bring this thief who is crucified unto a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet we also see, In God's Word, not only did one man die and enter into glory, but one man died and entered into hell. This teaches us that we cannot presume upon the grace of God. We're not guaranteed opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent and to get right with God. God is not a cosmic bellboy where we could ring the bell and God comes running to us to bid at our word as God somehow is some type of puppet that we can manipulate. Here's a man who, in front of the Lord Jesus Christ, the the, the thief who is unconverted, he dies and goes to hell unrepentant. I also note by way of introduction, the lie taught today that it is easier to get young people saved rather than old people. It is hard to get Older people saved, we are told. But yet nobody in human history has ever gotten anyone saved. As Jonah learned in Jonah chapter 2, as he was physically in the whale's belly, as he was in that great fish, utterly impossible for him to get out, yet God had that whale vomit him violently as it will onto the beach shore there, and God saved his life, and he utterly confessed in Jonah chapter 2, verse 9, that salvation was of the Lord. He gave all the glory to God. Yet in one of my textbooks for one of my classes that I have, I have, t- I have taken... In there, it talks about how to boost your attendance at church. And the pastor of this large church made it very clear. He said, you ought to never, ever say now in conclusion as you conclude your sermon. You should never say, finally, my last point is. Because if you do that, then sinners will grip themselves for the invitation and then you can't get them saved. The truth of the matter is you can't get anybody saved. We will also see how impossible it is, as we look at this account, the details of this account, how impossible it is for men to save themselves by good works. This criminal who is converted by the grace of God did absolutely nothing to earn salvation. There was no sacraments that he partook of. There was no church attendance on his record. No promises he made to God. He couldn't raise his hand. He couldn't walk an aisle. He was nailed to the consequences of his sin. He did nothing worthy of salvation. Yet God savingly and sweetly saved this man. By His grace. This morning, we'll mark four things about this criminal's conversion. 
Four things this morning about this criminal's conversion. The first thing I want you to note is the character of the criminal. The one who was brought to faith in Christ. I remember hearing people explain before I became a Christian, yes, there was that, that the thief that died and went to hell, but remember, there was the good thief that got saved. I'm here to tell you there was no good thief next to Jesus. Look at verse 39. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. The first thing we note from our text here is this man who was dying, who God will later convert, this man was called a malefactor, a worker of evil. He is an evil doer. This criminal who be converted was simply no good. Society couldn't find anything good in him. His family couldn't find anything good with him. All his life was nothing but the practice of evil. From Mark's account and Matthew's gospel, we learn not only was he a malefactor, a worker of evil, but he's called the thief. In Matthew 27, 38, it says, Then were two thieves crucified with him, Jesus, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Here's a man that probably he did steal. He probably thought that he would never get caught. He probably thought because he got away from the sight of man that he was beyond the sight of God. But the word of God makes it very clear that the eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the good and the evil. Here was a man that thought he could get away with it. He thought he can somehow outsmart God, outsmart the law of God. I remember reading the story of a criminal who was not too bright. He decided to go in and rip off a liquor store, and he got there, and he had a real, a, real, a real sneaky way to go about it. He went there and said, I need change, and he pulled out a $20 bill, and he laid it on the counter. And his plan was, the moment they opened up that cash drawer there, I'm going to take that cash drawer, and I'm going to go, I'm going to run. So he got in there, and he put his $20 down, said, I need some change, and they opened up the drawer, and he, of course, had his 20 there and left it there on the counter because he was going for bigger money. He grabbed that drawer and took off running. Boy, he, he thought he outsmarted the law that day and got home and counted all $15.06 of what he got away with. <laughs> he, he thought he could never get away. He thought he could get away with it. But yet the Eighth Commandment makes it so clear, thou shalt not steal. It doesn't say you shouldn't steal big things. You shouldn't steal things over 1999. Thou shalt not steal, period. But man has stolen from God. Men have stolen from God. My, men have, who God who has given us life, yet men do not live for the glory of God. You've stolen time from God. Men who have not been faithful and giving all of your resources that you have been given to tithe what belongs to God, you have stolen from God. To take, in, to take something that doesn't belong to you, regardless of its value, makes you a thief. In the eyes of a holy God. In reality, listen, this man's character was a thief, but let us not look down upon this man. Because every man has stolen from God Almighty. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 reminds us, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, don't be tricked. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor the abusers of themselves of mankind, nor thieves goes on to say, shall inherit the kingdom of God. But not only was he a malefactor, not only was he a thief, Mark's account, if you would turn with me, Mark chapter 15 and verse 32 records that this man was a blasphemer. He was a blasphemer. Look with me at Mark 15, we'll begin reading verse 29. 
And as they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests, mocking, said among themselves with the scribes, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. They're saying it in mockery. Yet it's true. He could not save himself. Verse 32, let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Watch this. And they that were crucified with him reviled him. The word reviled is here. The word reviled here is in the imperfect tense. Telling us, watch this, that both thieves, not just one, both thieves hurled blasphemous insults onto the Lord Jesus Christ over and over and over again at the Son of God in the Lord's face. Paul told Timothy that this would be common blasphemy in the last days. In 2 Timothy 3.1, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of themselves, covetous, boasters, blasphemers. During the great tribulation period, men will blaspheme God even more. Though they suffer the very judgments of God, you think it would bring them during the tribulation period to their knees and repentance towards God, but there we see the very character of man when man is left to himself, utterly depraved. For the Bible says in Revelation 16, 11, and they blaspheme the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. As God's judgments fail, you think they would repent and cry out for mercy, but instead they lift up their fists and they blaspheme the God who gave them life. Taking God's name in vain is another form of blasphemy. God makes it so clear, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold them guiltless that taketh his name in vain. And yet how many times do people do that thinking that they will not give an account to God? This is the character of this criminal. Say, well, I would never do that. I would never take the Lord's name in vain. Yet how many people, even among God's people, rent movies where God's name is taken in vain? No, you won't say it. You'll just pay for it for someone else to say it. Look at this man's character. Not too different than mankind. The character of this man, of this criminal. Secondly, I want you to mark the condition of the criminal. Let us go back to Luke 23 and verse 40. We're going to look at the condition of the criminal. In Luke 23 and verse 40, But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. What was he saying? He was saying we are suffering and we deserve what we are getting. They are getting, and justly so, the death penalty. The death penalty. Not instituted by the Republican Party, but instituted by God. In Genesis 9, 6, Whosoever sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he him. Here's a man. He's suffering the penalty of his sin, and that penalty is death. Does the Bible tell us that the wages of sin is death? All men deserve to die. All men will die physically. It's only those who are born twice that will not die the second death to be thrown in the lake of fire. Like what Spurgeon said, he said, look at fallen human nature. Whitfield used to say that it was half beast and half devil. 
I question whether both beast and devil are not slandered by being compared with man when he is left to his own. Listen, everyone, apart from the grace of God, is under the death penalty. The Bible says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Psalm 7 verse 11 says that God judges the righteous and God is angry with the wicked every day. John the Baptist made it so clear in John 3, 36, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, but he that believeth not, literally he that does not obey the Son, shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Truly all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Here's this man, he's suffering what, justly what he deserves. But I want you to mark also in verse 41 that this man is only suffering justly what he deserves, but he is utterly and totally helpless. He's helpless. He can do nothing to help himself. There he is. He's nailed to the cross. He can't just pull the nail out of his hand. He can't just reach down to his foot and take out that spike that's in his foot. He can do absolutely nothing to physically alleviate the pain, to physically stop the suffering that he justly deserves as he is dying because of his sin. He could do nothing to help himself. Listen, mankind can do nothing to help themselves. This is what Jeremiah meant, Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Or the leopard his spots? Then may ye do good that are accustomed to do evil? You cannot just simply change your nature. You need God to intervene. And if God doesn't intervene and leaves man on his own, man is utterly helpless and totally dependent upon God. Habakkuk 1.13 reminds us of God that thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil. Ah, uh, listen, as this man was helpless to save himself, so was every man, woman, boy, and girl. You are utterly helpless to save yourself. You can do nothing to add or make yourself worthy of salvation. Men are just like <clears throat> this criminal. The condition of this criminal was helpless, so mankind is helpless. We are totally dependent upon God to do something in order to bring us to true salvation. Not only do we know the character of this criminal and the condition of this criminal, utterly helpless as mankind is, I want you to mark thirdly the companion of this criminal. The companion, that is the criminal who died unconverted. I want you to note this man. I've heard people say, well, if only people could see... <clears throat> how much Christ suffered, then they would believe. If we only could put the gospel on the movie screen, then men will believe. If, if, we only had the, if God only had the assistance of Mel Gibson, some a great theologian that he is, if we could, he could just have his help, and he could put it on the big screen, then men would be melted with repentance. And all you got to do is just pray just as I am, and they'll come running down the aisle. If we can just picture it, then, then through that outward persuasion, men will be bought, brought to repentance. Listen, this man didn't watch a movie of the, uh, of the Passion of the Christ. This man who died and went to hell and repented, he saw it live. He's seen that this one was more than a regular man, that the Son of God was indeed the Son of God as he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The average man would curse and die, but not the Son of God. 
He's praying for those who have crucified him. He sees this, yet he is unbowed. He's unbowed. People who would say, well, only if you can, manip- only if you can move the emotions of people, then and only then will you really bring men and women to Christ, have no understanding of how radically depraved mankind is. No outward persuasion will be enough in and of itself to bring men to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. This companion was unbowed. He was unbroken. Verse 39. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. Again, the word translated railed on in the imperfect tense stresses the ongoing insulting of Jesus. If you're the Christ, save yourself. And save me too. If you're the Christ, save yourself. He is literally several feet away from Christ and he is cursing him to his face, knowing it's only a matter of hours before he meets God as maker. Yet he is unbound and unrepentant. No fear of God. The Word of God tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This man has no reverence for God Almighty. He may believe in God or a God that he has developed. He may have believed in the God of Hollywood. As a Hollywood actor gets up, he receives his award for the blasphemy that he's done on, on big screen and the immorality that he's portrayed. And immediately he'll grab his trophy, whatever they give him, and he'll say, I'd like to thank, thank God first of all. What God is he talking about? Certainly not the God of Holy Scripture. Certainly not the God who buried Sodom and Gomorrah in the Dead Sea there. Certainly not the one, the God who rained down hell from heaven upon cities for homosexuality. Certainly not the God who gave the Ten Commandments, not the Ten Suggestions. He's made up a God in his own image. Or maybe that this thief, unconverted, blasphemous, as he's cursing Christ, maybe he had the George Clooney philosophy. George Clooney said in an interview, I don't believe in heaven or hell. I don't know if I believe in God. All I know is that, an, as, that a, an individual, as an individual, I won't allow this life, the only thing I know to exist, to be wasted. Paul quoted the pagan philosopher in 1 Corinthians 15. Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. This is all there is. Let us just party it up and live it up. This is it. And we die, we're going to go six feet under, and that's that. That was maybe, maybe that was the philosophy of this criminal who died unrepentant. It's all, we're just going to die like a bunch of dogs be buried, and it's all over. He was just like the people, this unconverted criminal. He was like the people in Noah's day. 2 Peter 2.5 tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He preached both with his words and with his actions. As he labored for those 120 years building this massive ship on dry land with no way to get it to the water. I'm sure, obviously, people mocked him. As he did that, and by his very work, by his very lifestyle, he was condemning the world around him. He was preaching, and yet in his words, he also preached a message of coming judgment. And the people mocked him. But not only did the people see with their eyes the ship being built, but the, the, the people also saw something interesting. That God was bringing animals from around the world into the ship. Elephants are going in there, tigers, and all these other animals are going in there, and they're thinking, what is going on? 
They seen the ship built, the animals being obviously brought in by God, and the Word of God tells us that God shut the door. They saw that all and yet were unrepentant. They didn't repent and turn from their sin. I have a friend who I grew up with, Dusty. Uh, he was known as the, our, the, in our area, among our group of kids, our friends, he was the daredevil, he was the wild one. We always, we would light ramps on fire, he would jump them with his bike. We would put, line up our bikes, he would jump over them. Uh, we would do all kinds of burn different things, he would jump over it. He was a daredevil, he was going to be like the next evil Knievel. He wanted to, to do anything daring. As he grew up, as an unsaved individual, I remember once I heard, well, he, he was in a wreck. And he was at the hospital. He almost died. He was out in the foothills there on an ATC, and there he was on a three-wheeler, jumping ramps, doing his regular wild daredevil things, and he fell and he hit his head. He went into a coma. When he came out of the coma, where he, he, he almost died, and he was only 20, 21 years old, as he came out of the coma, I remember him speaking to us and telling us, boy, I really cheated death. Oh, I'm going to try to pick up on the nurse here. I'm going to try to talk to her. And the family was so happy. Boy, he's, he's feeling good. Look at him. Boy, he's back up to his wild ways. Oh, look at him. Look at him go. Boy, they're so elated. He must be doing better. In reality, they should have been sad. Because this great tragedy in his life did not bring this young man to repent of his sin and embrace Christ as his Lord and Savior. This thief would not even repent as he was dying in front of the very Son of God. That is why the other thief whom God was working in his heart told him, Dost not thou fear God? Don't you fear God, seeing that we are in the same condemnation, but we indeed justly, this man has done nothing amiss. He is the sinless Son of God. We're getting what we deserve. We're going to stand before God. Man, don't you fear God? The answer was no. He didn't. Hebrews 10, 31 reminds us it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Long ago, he had come to the place in his life where he had no fear of God. He had heard of the word of God. I believe he most likely he was a Jew, for a Roman citizen could not be crucified. That's why Paul, who held double citizenship, when he was to be executed, his head was chopped off. That was a nice way of dying back then. He was a Roman citizen. This man's not a Roman citizen, he's most likely a Jew. He heard the Bible read in synagogue. He had come to church. He had heard of appeals made. He'd heard the prophecies of Isaiah, of the coming Messiah. He heard the invitation of God in the book of Isaiah. He heard all these things, but then it went in one ear and out the other. He had no place for God. God was in his thoughts. That was something for little old ladies and, and little children, but not for this man. That's the companion of this criminal who dies. But all, let us mark lastly the conversion of the criminal. The conversion of this criminal. I want to note three things about his conversion. The conversion of this criminal. The first thing I want to note is this. That he was converted by the almighty, sovereign grace of God. This criminal could do absolutely nothing to save himself. Yet God saved him. What happened to him? Here he is, a blasphemer, railing on Christ as they lie him on the floor, as they pound the nails into his flesh, as they both blasphemed. 
They both were bad thieves, not good thieves. They both hurled insults at Christ, but God did a work in his heart. God had drawn him to the Son. God had infused life into him. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The preaching of the word of God. God had given him life and enabled him to flee to Christ by faith. What preaching did he hear? He heard some preaching that was pretty good from some very bad preachers. The people who walked by. Others he saved, but himself he cannot save. That was true. That was true. God's word, listen, God God can even use a donkey, can he? He can. He used these mocking men as they said, others he saved, but himself he cannot save. He heard preaching. He read the word of God. Say, did someone bring him a King James Bible? No, he read. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. He read the word of God. He heard the word of God. And God, by his his almighty grace, took his word and brought this man to repentance. This exalts not the criminal, but the awesome almighty grace of God. This man was a cursor just hours earlier. From a cursor to a convert, from a blasphemer to a believer, all in a moment of time, by the grace of almighty God. A criminal! But he died a Christian. Died in in, in utter horror. His feet nailed to a piece of wood, yet within hours he would walk on streets of gold. All to the glory of God's grace. Did not raise his hand. He could even walk an aisle. Didn't partake of any sacrament. There was nothing this man can do. Yet Titus 3, 5 reminds us, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, But according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Ah, listen. If we're saved this morning by the grace of God, you don't deserve a pat on your back. God deserves all the glory and all the credit for his grace. Think of Lydia. As the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 16, as he approached the city of Philippi, After he got that Macedonian vision, he goes there to preach the word of God as the ladies are gathered by the river, praying and and just praying, talking to the Lord, obviously fearing the God of Israel, yet they were lost, yet they were not saved, though they were religious. Paul goes there and he preaches, there happens to be there a lady, Lydia, a seller of purple lady from Thyatira, a businesswoman. She is there, and the Word of God tells us that they heard Paul preach, whose heart of Lydia, whose heart the Lord opened. That she attended unto the things spoken of Paul. There she is. Paul is preaching, but more than the preaching, God reached down in grace and opened her mind to the truth and enabled her to see Christ not as another criminal that is dying on the cross, another Jewish person being executed, but as the Son of God. And she went to Christ in faith and was saved. God did a work in this criminal's heart And he believed, he prayed, he turned to Christ. Not only that, he was converted by sovereign grace, but number two, he was converted suddenly. 
He was converted suddenly. In verse 39, And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. Here they are one moment blasphemy, and the next moment he's crying out for mercy. God had come to him in a moment of time and saved him. Isn't that what God did with the persecutor of the infant church? Isn't that what God did to Saul of Tarsus who would not take a track? Who would not go to church? Here's a man, Saul of Tarsus, the first inquisitor of the early church as he went out to have Christians arrested there in the city of Damascus, to have them thrown in prison, to have them to pressure them to deny Christ or be executed. Yet God comes to him. Jesus appears unto him and saves him. And that man who was a persecutor became a preacher. The man who hated Christ was now on the floor saying, Lord, what will thou have me to do? Oh, God did a a, a great work in saving Saul of Tarsus, and he did it in a moment of time. Isn't that what he did in history to a man by the name of John? John, whose mother died at an early age, and he was a seaman with his father. As he learned the wicked, vile lifestyle of being a sailor and being involved in the slave trade of that day, ends up being a slave himself in Africa. Yet as he lived in an immoral and wicked lifestyle, as he was on that storm in the ocean on that ship, all of a sudden he began to remember what his mother taught him as a little boy. He began to remember the word of God. All of a sudden he finds himself dying. All of a sudden he finds himself crying out and saving faith to Christ. And God reached down and suddenly, quickly saved that man. John Newton is who I'm referring to. will later go on to write Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved not a good person, a wrench like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Why? Because God opened his eyes. God came suddenly and converted him. Oh, as the Wesley put it so clearly, long my imprisoned spirit laid. Fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I awoke the dungeons flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was freed. I arose and went forth and followed thee. God did a work and came to him in regenerating grace and mercy. Enabled him suddenly to cry out to Christ for salvation. Ah, Wesley's hymns were better than his theology. Number three. He showed evidence of being converted. Showed evidence of being converted. What is that evidence, Pastor Castro? Look at verse 41. The first evidence is repentance. And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. You know what he did as he was dying? He's dying on the cross. Did he say, call the ACLU? This is unfair. This is cruel and unusual punishment. Please, have Hillary come and save me. No, he didn't do that. He says, I, get, I, I fully deserve this and more. A person making excuses for their sin shows they have no repentance towards God. This man's heart was turned. God came to him and turned his heart. He had repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. That was the evidence of his conversion. God had done a work in his heart. And the evidence was he repented and he believed upon the Lord. 
He came not only did he repent of his sin, but he believed. He says in verse 42, and he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. He confesses Christ as the king. He calls Jesus Lord. He calls, I, cries, cries out to the Lord in faith. This man came to realize that Jesus is not just a Jewish criminal dying. He is the Lord. He prays to the Lord. Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Isn't that the first evidence of Paul's conversion? It's not that Paul, Saul of Tarsus, converted. All of a sudden, he, he, had a, uh, he had a little halo over him. And he would walk doing this. I have no idea what that means. But he would walk and, look, he's saved. Look, he's a saint now. No. The first evidence of Paul's conversion was prayer. Lord, what will thou have me to do? He prayed because God did a work in his heart. And here we find this man, God did a work in his heart, and he cries out to Christ in prayer to do something only God can do. Take him to heaven. Take him to heaven. He believed that there was life after death. No soul sleep for this man. He didn't believe he was going to go to the grave and go to sleep. An eternal mimis. This man knew that there's, there's, there's an eternity out there. He's either headed for heaven or to hell. And he cried out to the Lord. And listen, he stood up for Christ. He said in verse 40, But the other answered and rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? He rose up and rebuked. Listen, if you rebuke someone, you say, Well, it was hard. I had to rebuke so and brother so-and-so. Yeah, it was hard. But listen, every single word that a man would utter as he's being crucified caused horrible, excruciating pain. Every word, Lord, remember me. It, took, it was an agony as he stood for Christ and rebuked the other man. How could he do that? How could he speak with so much pain? God had done a work in saving this man's soul. As that hymn, there is a fountain ends. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. And by the way, the only way your sins will be washed away is if you first realize that you're just as vile as him. You may be dressed better, smell better, brush your teeth, good. But none of that can make you acceptable before God. God will only accept the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that is given and imputed to the believer the moment he comes to repent and to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that this converted criminal's testimony would be your testimony. A testimony that exalts the almighty sovereign grace of a gracious Savior. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you would bless your word to our hearts and lives. Let us leave challenged by your truth. May you be so pleased as to bring men and women, boys and girls this day, to true repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would bless and bring glory to thyself in Christ's name. Pastor Smith.